0: I want to begin by telling you a a story of a man who came into some good fortune. He actually won a single ticket to the Super Bowl through a local radio program. And so he was very excited, very stoked, as you might imagine, to be able to attend, of all things, the greatest sporting event of the year in going to the Super Bowl. And so as he arrived at the Super Bowl, he's carrying this excitement with him, his single ticket, and he goes through the gates, and he finds out that his ticket isn't in quite as good of a position as he wanted it to be. As a matter of fact, that ticket would take him all the way up to the last row of seats, the farthest ones from the field. And as the man looked down, it was like he was looking at an ant farm. I mean, to even see the game, he had to get his binoculars out and watch. But as he had his binoculars out, he kind of scanned through the crowd, and he noticed that in... The best of all places, right at the 50 yard line, next to the aisle, there was a single seat where no one was sitting. And he thought, what an odd thing for this major sporting event to have an empty seat. Well, he thought maybe someone just had an emergency. Maybe someone had to run to the restroom. So as the game went along, he Looking through those binoculars, saw the kickoff, he saw the first series, and eventually the the team that was on offense had to to punt the ball. Well, all during that time, this man had been keeping his eyes shifting back and forth between that open seat and the field, and still no one had taken that most prized possession, 50-yard line seat. And so finally he got up the courage to leave his own seat, and he ran down in excitement and spoke to the older gentleman who was sitting next to that seat. And he asked that gentleman, excuse me, sir, is this seat taken? Much to his surprise, the older gentleman that was sitting next to it said, no, that seat is not taken. Well, the guy was kind of a little bit of in shock, so he thought, well, maybe I should ask why. Well, well how, how do you know, what, why is this seat not taken? Well, the older gentleman said, well, you see, this seat is a seat for a ticket that was purchased for my wife. You see, she and I have been attending the Super Bowl every year since the year we got married but she passed away, and so she's not able to be here with me in this seat. Well, the man, the man was just still shocked, and, you know, he's feeling a bit of remorse for the, for the gentleman who had lost his wife. He said, I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your wife, but I'm just, I'm shocked. I'm amazed that you, you couldn't find someone to come and take the seat. Did, didn't you have any relatives? Didn't you have any close friends who would be willing to come with you to this game to sit in the seat? And this older gentleman looked at him and said, well, I tried, but they all decided to go to my wife's funeral instead. (laughs) Now there's some elements of commitment in that story, and then there's some elements of not-so-commitment, right? When you think of a couple that's been attending the Super Bowl for a long time together, that's a commitment, a marriage that wants to do things together. But when we think of one who's not even willing to give up his football and the commitment he has to that for his bride, we're talking about a negative sort of commitment, right? And we live in a society where there is a hesitance toward commitment. We live in a society that has a lot of broken commitments, as a matter of fact. When we think about the rate of divorce in our nation, this high rate of individuals who are not staying in the commitment of marriage, Or we even on the other side of that, we have a growing number of individuals who would rather just cohabitate and not join into the covenant of marriage. Not make the commitment that God calls us to make if we're going to be in this relationship with another one in a sexual sort of way. And then when we bring that over into the church, I think we see even more of an essence of a lack of commitment in that our numbers across the nation are dropping in terms of church attendance and individuals who are joining churches. Individuals, just as a society, seem so reluctant to commit themselves to any sort of institution. We're so independent as a nation that commitment for us is really off of our radar, not something we're going to talk about. But today I want to turn the tides. Because I want you to know that God calls us to make some pretty serious, some pretty sincere commitments when it comes to our progression in the Christian faith. For those of you who have been here the last several weeks, you know that we're working our way through this study of a new vision for new vision. This idea that we want to convey that we are a church progressing in a certain direction. We are a church that wants to provide a healthy, balanced diet in certain categories, and we are a church that wants each one of you. To be growing through these steps and in this way. And so, the overall vision that we are portraying, the overall vision that we are committed to, the overall vision that we will now be striving and evaluating all that we do by is this that we desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing. It's this imagery of pottery, this imagery of how a potter takes this raw, nasty clay and makes it into something new by his vision. He commits it to a solid vessel, as we'll be talking about here today, through the firing process in the kiln. And then he fills it with something that is of value so that it can be flowing toward a specific purpose. And that's what we are all called to be in this idea of being shaped in the potter's hands, being his committed vessels caring about his work. And today we're specifically going to be talking about that fired element. We're talking about moving from changed to committed. When we talked about the found stage, we talked about how we want individuals to move from the community, that is those who have some level of interaction with us, to the crowd those who are gathering here with us. And then last week we talked about how we want those individuals then to be formed. That is, we want them moving from being just in the crowd to being actually changed by God's transforming power. And now when we get to this week, we're talking how we want those individuals who are changed to move to a point of commitment. We want individuals to make a commitment to God's work. And so that we desire that as many as God allows would, through this fellowship, be fired into a solid vessel ready for God's use. And that's what we're talking about here today. And we've been talking all along about how this is kind of tied in with the Great Commission. Jesus' final words to his disciples, that they would go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And there's an element of commitment, even in that word, make disciples. For a disciple is someone who is committed to a discipline. And, and Jesus, in his final words, calls us to a level of commitment, that we would make disciples. If disciples are being made, then individuals are making commitments to a discipline, which is following the Lord Jesus. But also, there's another element of, of commitment that's displayed in that. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. This baptism is an act of commitment, an act of showing that I am dead to the old person, alive to the new. And so these are commitments that are very real, very practical, very well played out in what Jesus commands us in the Great Commission. And we've talked about how we want to multiply God's glory on the earth. That's a, the essence of what we are striving to do as a body, living out the Great Commission. And the way we do that at this stage is that we multiply God's glory on the earth. By multiplying members of God's family. We, we talked in the first stage about how we multiply God's glory on the earth by multiplying magnifiers of his name. And then we had models of his character, which are being mod- multiplied in this form stage. But now we are talking about members of God's family. We want you progressing in this way, church. We want to be an environment where individuals can progress in this way, where we are spurring one another on toward these pursuits. And what we want individuals to know is that God wants you to be a member of his family. That is, God is calling you to make some solid commitments. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about commitments and family, that, that the sort of family that would foster those commitments when we get to Romans chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do, find your way to Romans 12. Maybe you can look on with someone else. Maybe you've got a Bible on your phone or a tablet or whatever that looks like. Swipe turn whatever it takes to get to Romans chapter 12 and let's look together at what Paul is showing us here. Now the background on the book of Romans is that Paul wrote this letter to a church that he did not found. A lot of the letters we read in the New Testament that are by Paul are to churches that he was involved in with missionary trips either in founding or in strengthening as he went along the way. But the, the church in Rome is not a church that Paul has even visited at the point in which he writes this letter. And so Paul is very meticulous to lay out the details of what salvation is. He's very meticulous to lay out the details of how we are all lost and we are all sinners before God. We are all rightfully deserving his condemnation. But he then goes on to show that how God, through his interceding mercy, has, through a a marvelous act of grace, made a way for us in Christ to be reconciled to God. Because Jesus has come and has borne our penalty. Jesus has stood in our place. The just for the unjust. And so Paul makes it clear then that that God has made a resolution for this. He wants the church in Rome to know that he's got some real clear teaching about what God is doing in this event. When we come to Romans chapter 12, Paul then kind of spins all of this doctrine, all of this solid teaching that he's been working on into a more practical approach to tell the church, okay, now, based on this truth of what God has done, how he is seeking to restore you in Christ, this is where we want you to know God wants you to be next. And so chapter 12, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, shifts over to this practical application of how we ought to live in light of all that he's done. The first thing I want to show you from God's Word is this. God is calling you to be totally committed to him. God is calling you to be totally committed to him. How committed? Well, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. There Paul writes, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. This is a great call to commitment, my friends. Paul uses this imagery of sacrifice in the Old Testament when individuals would sin as a, as a payment for their sin, as, as a kind of forethought looking forward to one who would ultimately come and take the penalty of that sin where they wouldn't need these anymore. They would take sacrifices. They would be animals, or sometimes it would be food items, and they would take these to. The temple of God. There, if there were animals, those animals would then be sacrificed. They would be slaughtered. They would be killed, and offered up on the altar, on the fire, as a burnt offering, in many cases. And that's a total commitment, my friends. I mean, if you take a goat and you slice its throat and you throw it on the burning pile, that goat is pretty committed to the task you've committed it to at that point, right? And that's what Paul is describing for us, to present your bodies, all of who you are, as a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing unto God. That's a great call to commitment. We're to be this living sacrifice, a total commitment. It's an all-in sort of commitment. There is no turning back once a sacrifice has been given. And Paul further indicates that in presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, we're carrying out a spiritual service of worship. And there's a very real component to our worship of the living God, which calls us to serve him. That is, in giving all of ourselves to God's work, we are making a steadfast commitment to be available for the work that he desires for his spiritual children. do and it seems to me that in our day there are a lot of people who just do not want to serve they don't want to be known as a servant they don't want to have an attitude of a servant we all instead we want to be served And, and I think some of this comes from the consumer sort of mentality that we see around us right we've got companies that are constantly bombarding us with advertisements to say come and partake of our service Come come, come and be served by us. Let this product serve you in this way. And so we've got such a consumer mindset that says, everything should be working for me. But that's not the mentality that we see Paul describing here for the church. Instead, who is it that's being called to serve here? It is the church who is called to serve. And, we, and we, we bring that sort of mentality, that sort of serve me sort of mentality into the church. So many people seem to come into church with this mentality that this place better meet my needs or I'm out the door. And, and now I believe that church ought to be serving individuals. I believe that churches really ought to be meeting very practical, very real sort of needs. And I also believe that it is my calling as the shepherd of this flock to feed the flock that is a very important part that's what i invest so much of my time in in the weeks preparing for this hour when we are gathered together it's a very important thing to me but i can't help but wonder if the reason that so many people come away from church with the experience feeling like their needs weren't met is because there were so many other people in that church who had that same sort of mentality of why well, i want to be served instead of i want to be serving others And sometimes I'll hear an individual who comes to a church like ours and leaves this place saying, I just wasn't fed. I need to find somewhere else because I wasn't being fed. And there are times, and it's not every time. I know there are some churches that are just off the roller when it comes to doctrine. But there are times when I just think in the back of my mind, you want to be fed, pick up a fork and get to work, (laughs) right? Because we're doing the best we can as a church to put the food down on your level. We're doing the best we can to make this food prepared to where it will nourish you. But sometimes, my friends, if you want to get fed, you got to get the fork and get to work. And I just want to tell you, the church's job is not only to serve you, it's equipped to equip you to serve each other. And that's part of the commitment that we make together in this body that we call the church. And so I want you to see that, that my heart, the heart of your leadership team, is that we would see a church that is fired up, that is ready to go, that's been gone through the kiln, it's committed to the purposes that God's calling us to so that we can work together for His glory as we serve Christ with all that we are living sacrifices take all of me Lord I want to be used by you and Paul drives us toward that commitment what's the basis of our service to each other well we've already been served is what Paul shows us here Paul urges us into this life of a living sacrifice by the mercies of God and God has shown great mercy to my, to us my friends God has shown an amazing mercy. How can we live as a living sacrifice? How can we give all that we are? Because we have a God who has come in the form of Christ our Lord to be a dying sacrifice to enable us to be a living sacrifice. Do you see that transition? That that Jesus, who had eternal life, who lived in this in this wonderful state with the Heavenly Father, in perfect unity with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, left heaven's glories to come and take on this rotten flesh that you and I get so sick of dealing with sometimes, and went to the point of death, so that we could be living sacrifices. He took the death that we deserve so that we could have eternal life in Him. And that, my friends, is the joy of the gospel. That is the fuel for being living sacrifices for Christ. This is the fuel for any commitment that we would make, that God has interceded in mankind and has paved the way for us to be restored to Him. So if you want to know what commitment to serving others looks like, then look to Jesus. Look to God's mercy. Look to the cross. Because there it's on full display, my friends. And God is calling us each and every one of us to be totally committed to him but we'll never outcommit what he's already done for us the next thing i want you to see is that god knows and wants what is best for you god knows and he wants what is best for you that's what we see in romans chapter 12 verse 2 what does paul say there he says and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, here Paul refers to God's will for each of us. It's it's a will that is good and that is acceptable and that is perfect. And so many individuals wander through life looking for God's perfect will for them as though it's like hidden away in some dark alley and they're just going to stumble into it one day. But but here Paul lays it out for us. God's perfect will for us, his good and acceptable and perfect will is this, that you would forsake the lures of the world and be committed to what he's changing you into. And what he's changing you into, my friends, is not going to be a horrid experience. He desires what's good for you. It's a good will. It's a perfect will. And I believe a lot of churches really struggle with this battle between what the world offers and what God has to offer. And it's not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that we want to be engaging. If there are streams of communication for example that the world is using, like movies or multimedia or social social media, we want to get the gospel injected into those streams. Right? I mean, if, if entertainment provides a way for us to get the gospel across to individuals, then we want to be maximizing our opportunities for entertainment. But I think a lot of churches get so lost in that struggle that they lose focus on what Christ is calling them to. They lose focus on the gospel in, the, in their attempt to be another entertainment complex. They're, they're desiring to draw a crowd, and so they're focusing on the elements of entertainment and in the process. They forget To say that Christ is what we are drawing you to. And my friends, we can't get to that place. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth of the matter. We're never going to compete with the entertainment industry. We're never going to compete with these multi-million dollar budgets that are being poured into a variety of things. We just don't have that, right? You've seen our finances already today. The church cannot offer what the entertainment complex has to offer. If you came for entertainment today, I just want to tell you, you probably could have stayed home and watched Netflix and gotten something a little bit better, all right? You probably could have gone to the movies and found something that was a lot more entertaining. And the church just can't compete with the world when it comes to entertainment. But I want to tell you this, the world can't compete with the church for what we have to offer. The world cannot compete with what we have to offer in this transforming, growing sort of relationship that Christ is calling us to that will result in our eternal life with God himself. My friends, we've got a good and a perfect will that God is calling us to, and it's so much greater than what entertainment would offer. Will we continue to maximize those streams to the glory of God? Absolutely. But my friends, the gospel's got to be at the heart of every bit of it, or we'll lose our way. And friends, I want to tell you this. You don't need another entertainment complex. You need a church. God knows and he wants what's best for you. And that leads me to the next point. God has a place for you to exercise your commitments. God has a place for you to exercise your commitments. For this, I'm going to flip over to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church in kind of its purest form. I mean, the church as its just been born by the power of the holy spirit the day of pentecost god is moving among the nations to make his glory resound and we see the first true converts outside of the disciples who as the spirit comes down the word is preached into their language and many come to faith and in that moment when the church is formed what is this activity that they bind themselves to what is the commitment that we see individuals making well there are a few commitments really that we see In these verses. But starting in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2. We read here. And with many other words. He that is Peter. Who's been preaching to the people here on the day of Pentecost. He solemnly testified. And kept exhorting them saying. Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received the word. Were baptized. Two commitments made there. For some. Really, for all of these, they've received the word, first of all. all, There's a commitment in that they are coming to faith. They have been found at this point. But next, they're baptized. There's this very visible sign of the commitment that they are making to something known as the church. So then those who had received the word and were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls that's an interesting tidbit, that they were added about 3,000 souls. There's a certain level of accounting that is taking place in this passage. Well, what are they added to? What are they committing themselves to? Well, that's what we carry on with verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. This gathering together, this assembly of believers. And they had all things in common. Verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day and breaking bread from house to house. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's that accounting element again. Day by day, those who were being saved were being added to the number of this assembly of believers. And what's happening here is that we are seeing the formation of the church. This word, Church is really a word which literally just means ecclesia, this this gathering together. We talk about ourselves being New Vision Fellowship. A fellowship is just kind of a gathering together of people. This is what the people were bonding together into, this fellowship which was characterized by some very sincere attitudes towards God, some very sincere commitments to say that I'm turning away from the life that I once lived in repentance. I'm coming to Jesus by faith. And in that commitment, then they make a secondary, visible sort of commitment to say that I am binding myself together with this body through baptism. And baptism is such a visible portrait of really dying, being a living sacrifice. I'm dead to the old man. I'm alive to Christ. I am a living sacrifice myself. And that's what they're showing through, through this baptism. And then they're added to something. They're added to this implicit commitment they're added to the church by being saved and by being baptized these individuals are being added to the assembly of believers and the very fact that there's a number that's being maintained even as luke writes this here for us in acts chapter 2 shows us that the early church was keeping up with members they were keeping up with the number of individuals who were a part of their fellowship And who were the members of that church? They were the lost who had been committed to Christ. They made this Godward commitment to repent and be saved and be baptized, and that was accompanied by a commitment to the church. You see, the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who isn't bound to a church. There's just not a concept for that in the New Testament. These individuals devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship of the breaking of bread, having all things in common, sharing all proceeds, of their property and possessions with those in need. And so in the clearest and the purest form that we can see of individuals who are being saved by God's work at that very first in-gathering, what we see is that those individuals were binding together for purposes of loving and supporting and developing and encouraging one another to grow in the Lord. Why? Because that's God's design. That's God's design for us when we come to Christ. God has designed that those of us who had been saved and become members of his family would be known in this family as members of the church. Every Christian needs a church. Every Christian needs a place to make solid commitments to serving a life of purpose like pottery that's been fired in the kiln and ready to be used. That's the commitment we're called to make. And we exercise our commitment in a very practical way here in this church through what we call church membership. Have you ever thought about why we would call it membership? As though we're members of something? Well, there's a very practical reason for that. We're going to see that in our next set of verses in Romans chapter 12. So find your way back to Romans chapter 12. And the next set of verses that we would find here come in verse 3 through verse 5. Paul says, therefore, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have a sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we all have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another. And as we look into this Passage. As we think about what this idea of membership means, Paul shows this analogy between our bodies. We talk about the members of our body, right? If someone was dismembered, uh, maybe as an act of of, uh, being involved in a a war, for example, we know that they've lost some limb of their body. We, We think about you know our legs and our arms being members. We think about our brain and our heart being members of our body. And that's what Paul is pointing to as he draws out this idea of how the church is a body. And the body consists of members. And there's a need for each one of us to be members of this body who have come to Christ. And I just want to share with you as we walk through that three reasons why you need a church. Three reasons why you need a church. The first is in that set of verses that I just read for you. You need a church. Because you can't do it all on your own. You need a church because you can't do it all on your own. Here in these verses, Paul talks about how it's wrong to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And who are those who think too highly of themselves in this passage? Well, it's those who don't have sound judgment. In that they have forgotten that God gives his grace in a certain measure to each individual. He grants to each individual a certain amount of faith. And so it's those who don't have sound judgment who are forgetting that God has allotted to each Christian a measure of faith. Have you ever met someone like that? Someone who kind of has the mentality that they are self sufficient in their faith. That they've got all that it takes on their own. They don't need what anybody else has to offer to be a good Christian. I hear that most often from individuals who say, well I pray, I read my Bible, I watch Charles Stanley, if you're older, or I watch Andy Stanley, if you're younger, on television. And so I get, I get my spiritual nourishment. I don't need anything else. Why, why do I need the church? And when we get too confident in the superiority and self-sufficiency of our own faith, then that's when we start to decide to stay away from those hypocrites who are over at the church, right? Those individuals who we've seen not quite walking out the walk. Well, the reality is, We're an assembly of hypocrites, but we're not staying there, my friends. We're seeking to progress into what God is calling us to be. So come join the nation of hypocrites as we seek to become those who are restored for Christ and used for His glory because He can take nasty, broken things and make them into something new, my friends. When we we think we don't need a church, we find ourselves on this spiritual island And that's not what God has designed for us. That's not his good and perfect and acceptable will for us, that we would be living on a spiritual island. Christ calls you to be a member of a body. Don't get the impression that that you can function according to God's plan by yourself apart from the body. That's why Paul describes us here as members of the body. We're members of one another. I mean, think of those members of your body, your arms, your legs, your, your brain, your vital organs. These are all important members of your body, but they all carry out different tasks, don't they? They do different things. And we're thankful that they carry out different things, right? I mean, I I have both a brain and a heart, but they are both vital organs to my body. They do some very different sort of things, right? But if you take either one away from me, then I will be quite the suffering organism, right? That's what Paul's describing for us here as we talk about the church, this picture of the church We're so much more effective as a body that is working together with each member using the gifts that are given to him or her to the work of the whole than we would be independently. And you need a church because you can't do it all on your own. But secondly, you need a church because you have been gifted to be a giver. Look at verses 6 through 8 here. You've been gifted to be a giver. What's Paul say? Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. In these verses, Paul calls us to exercise. Relax, all right? I know that causes a little tension for some of us. But he's calling us to exercise because we're each given gifts according to verse 6. And those gifts differ for each person according to that same verse. But that's no excuse for us not to be exercising the gifts that we have. When we look at this list of gifts that Christians are given by grace, we can imagine some individuals who are shaped pretty differently filling these gifts, right? Paul talks about the gift of prophecy, which had kind of a couple of connotations in the New Testament. It could either mean someone who kind of predicted the future, is what, which is what we tend to think about when we think about the prophets of the Old Testament. It could also mean someone who's just kind of speaking God's word into a situation. Forth telling is another way which prophecy really kind of appears. And someone we think of with a, with a gift of prophecy would be someone who's got a pretty bold and brash and doesn't mind stepping on your toes sort of personality, right? Compare that with someone who shows mercy, which is another one of those gifts that Paul describes here in this list. If someone has has found themselves in a peril of life and they need mercy, coming and stepping on their toes is probably not going to help much, right? And so we think of individuals who are serving with these two different types of gifts, and we think they're probably going to have some different personality types. God has probably blessed us in ways that mean we're not all going to have all of those gifts. And that's absolutely what Paul is describing for us here. We have a variety of gifts in the body known as the church. Some individuals need to be in the limelight to carry out their gifts. Others don't care to be anywhere near the limelight to carry out their gifts. But we still are called to be part of the same body, the same family, functioning for the same Lord this also means that we don't need to live with jealousy right we don't have to look at those who are in the church who have different gifts than us and say well man why didn't god give me that gift instead of this gift of teaching or showing mercy or or whatever that might be right we don't have to have envy in this space god gives his mercy and his grace and his measure of faith to each one according to his desires and his purposes so we each need to bring our gifts to the table, freely involving ourselves in service if we want to see this body, this organism known as the church, thriving for the glory of God. So let's be fired together into a, this collective vessel, a, a collective uh, archive of vessels, this, this gathering of vessels which are ready to be used in the potter's hands. And our gifts may differ, but we're all called to be all in doesn't matter what your gifts are you're still called to be a living sacrifice you're still called to be fully fired in the potter's hands ready for his use and you've been gifted to be a giver that leads to the final reason why you need a church the third and final reason why you need a church is that you need a church because you need to be loved and you need to be loving you need to be loved and you need to be loving paul paul goes on in verse nine Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those re- who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. You see, the chief command in these verses is found in verse 10. Paul says that we should be devoted. Now, that's a word of commitment, is it not? When you think about devotion, you're thinking about commitment to a particular purpose. Paul says that we're supposed to be Devoted. But what does he says we should be devoted to? He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now there's a commitment. God has designed the church to be a dispenser of brotherly love. People need to be loved. Each one of us has a yearning to be loved. A yearning to belong. And the church ought to be the sort of place where that can be found. This sense of belonging the sense of being loved. Because members of the church ought to be members of a family, caring for one another, caring for one another's needs, looking out for one another's interests. And it's clear to me that in these verses, brotherly love is a love which desires to see others in the family growing. It's a desire that looks out for other people and says, I want to serve you. I want to be committed to you. I want to see you growing. I want to see that nobody gets left behind in this place. And Paul puts a clear qualifier around the sort of love that we as a church should be committed to. In verse 9 he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. I mean, this, this word in, in Paul's day really literally referred to someone who wore a mask or really it's the negative of that. So you would wear a mask to be in a play, for example, and you're acting as something that you are not. Paul says, don't do that. Don't put on the mask as though you are loving someone when you are truly not loving them. And our love is hypocritical when we ignore or celebrate what we know God's word proclaims to be evil in the life of someone else rather than encouraging to live the holy life that God is calling them to. That's what Paul makes clear here in verse 9. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, I think so often in our world, we face this temptation just to explain life away like there is no sin, everybody's good, come and be happy, let's pat you on your back, send you on your way with a good smile on your face. But that's not love, my friends, because love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good and seeks to bring individuals into a holy relationship with God. Because again, the path that God is leading you to is a good and a perfect path. His will for you is a good one. And so when we talk about pressing individuals onto that will. we're talking about pressing them to something that is going to be all out for their benefit in the true trajectory of time. And that's what we're doing as a body. God intends for us to love and encourage others to be all that they can be. But, but love is also hypocritical when we give preference to ourselves over others. In this sort of false love, we bear with others only so long as we see some benefit in the relationship to ourselves. You ever known somebody like that? Like they want to be your buddy, they want to love you until they figure out that you don't have anything else to offer them, and then they're ready to move along to the next buddy, the next one that they love, right? Paul says that that's a sort of love that has hypocrisy. That's the sort of love we ought to avoid. Instead, he says in verse 10, give preference to one another in honor. If I'm giving preference to you, doesn't mean that you have something to offer to me. I'm just, I'm just giving of myself. What a Christ-like sort of thing to do, by the way. Also, our love is hypocritical when we are lazy in that love. Some individuals say that they love the church, but they never pitch in. They let others pick up their slack. But God's word says here in verse 11 that not being devoted to one another in brotherly love means that we're not lagging behind in diligence. You see, if we're lagging behind in our diligence, then we are exercising a hypocritical sort of love. But what does Paul say? He says we are to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. That doesn't mean that if your body's falling apart in some way and your health is an ailment that you can't be a member of the church. Again, he's talking about us to use the gifts that we have, the availability that we have, all for his glory. as a full commitment to him. And then finally, our our love is hypocritical when we give up in hard times. There are very few individuals who will hang with a church through hard times. But Paul says here that true brotherly love is characterized by persevering in tribulation in verse 12. And then Paul shows us that, that ultimately this fulfillment of loving, this fulfillment of brotherly love is fleshed out when we lift other people up. We are here, my friends, to lift one another up. We are here to build one another up into all that God has designed for us to be. And you need a church because you need to be loved and you need to be loving. And God's chief avenue for doing that for Christians is that we would love one another and lift one another up in this body known as the church. We do this by being devoted to prayer, verse 12, contributing to the needs of the saints in practicing hospitality, Verse 13 rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep in verse 15, associating with the lowly in verse 16. And my friends, we need a love that is without hypocrisy. there's any place on God's green earth where that sort of love ought to be found, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. If we're going to meet this high mark of being a body that's all in to the glory of God, living sacrifices then we must be a body where all that we do has in mind solidifying commitments to the Lord Jesus and serving Him. What commitments is Christ calling you to make, my friends? What commitments would He have you being involved in for the purposes of His glory? Maybe there's a a commitment to come to Him by faith. Maybe, Maybe you've never made that commitment to turn away from what was your life of sin and your, and your absence from his presence and to turn toward this glorious gospel of grace that he offers. Maybe you've never made that commitment. That's a commitment you need to make. Maybe you've made that commitment, but you've never stepped forward with a commitment that's before the body that says, I want to be a part of this body. I want to show that I am a living sacrifice. I want to show that I'm dead to the old person alive to the new. I want to be baptized. Maybe that's a commitment that you need to make. Or maybe some other commitment that the Lord would be calling you to make, like joining this church. Last Sunday of this month, we're going to be having a membership class here. It's our way of introducing members to the vision, the purpose, the organizational structure of who we are as a body and what we are striving to do as a body. And we need individuals who will be committed to this task. This vision, my friends, is going to take an army of believers to bring multitudes to the glory of God. And we need individuals who will be involved in that pursuit maybe that's something god is calling you to do maybe that's a commitment he's calling you to make i heard a story of a young little lad in scotland who attended this rural church back in the 1800s as a part of a mission sort of service set of meetings that were happening in that church and as the offering basket came by this young lad he asked the usher to put the basket on the floor And then he stepped his tiny little feet into that basket and said, I don't have much to give, but I'm giving all of me. That young little boy would grow up at the age of 21 to depart on a trip. His name was Robert Moffat. He would then go to South Africa and he would work there among the natives, establishing a church. He would work seven years before he would even see his first convert this, this young boy from this rural area that did, really didn't have a lot of promise if you looked at the statistics on paper became one who learned all of the language of the nation where he went there in South Africa. And he translated all of the Bible into their language. And by the end of his life there were multitudes of individuals who had come to faith because of his ministry. But it all started there as that little boy stepping into that basket saying all i have to offer is me but i'm going to put all i have to offer in your hands is there a commitment you need to make my friends let's join together in prayer as our praise team comes forward father you have shown yourself to be totally committed to us what greater commitment could we see than that our savior would come and live on this earth and face the mockery and the scorn and the beatings and being spat upon and being humiliated and naked and hung on a cross to be tortured in death for us god we praise you for the commitment that we see in jesus our lord and father i know that you are calling us as a body to greater levels of commitment you're calling us to be all in for your kingdom And Father, I just pray that you would unite us by the power of your Spirit behind this vision, that we would be committed vessels, like those instruments which have been prepared by the potter and fired in the kiln, that we would be ready for you, O Lord, to say, go here and do my work. God, bless us with an ambition to be committed for you. And may you receive the glory as we multiply your glory here on the earth. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.